Hello, everybody. It's me again, uh, the perhaps deadest of pundits, Adam Proctor, coming back from a very long hiatus. Thanks, everybody, for abiding that time off. Um, I'm going to be talking much more about what I was up to and the kind of thought processes and things like that that I was engaged in and with over that time. But I think all of us in various moments of our lives, in various moments of the ebbs and flows of the political cycle, need to step off the hamster wheel from time to time in order to kind of reassess what we're doing, right? What is the strength of our forces? What are the, what directions are we headed in? Why are we doing what we do? Who is our audience? Who should our audience be? What have we been doing? What should, should, what should we be doing instead, right? That kind of constant need for assessment and adjustment instead of just keeping our heads down and soldiering on, even though we aren't getting nearly the results that we desire. That impulse is very strong on the left, the, the latter impulse. And it comes from a good place. It comes from a place of wanting to succeed, of putting our heads down, committing to the things that we uh, hold dear and true as, as our core principles. And that's a, very, that's a very good thing. But when that leads us to put our heads down, ignore results, and uh, continue forward, soldier on without any awareness, seemingly, of our failures, successes, or prospects in that you know pursuit, uh, that's... That's damaging. It's harmful. And uh, sometimes it's important to step off that hamster wheel and do as Lenin did back in the early 19th century and uh, go back to the library to study and read following a set of failed revolutionary attempts in Russia and Europe in his day. Um, I didn't go back to the library, but I did take some time off to rethink and reassess. And that time off, uh, my friend and comrade Nicholas Kiersey of Fully Automated Podcast reached out to me uh, and he wanted to do an interview about me and about DPS and about the show. And my first thoughts were, oh, hell no. I'm very uncomfortable with being what Nick refers to me as later on in the show, a, a small public intellectual to a, a niche online leftist audience. That latter part was my addendum. Um, a D-list public intellectual <laughs> in a minuscule uh, Twitter online sect, uh, although less and less engaged in Twitter these days. Thank God for that. But then I thought about the opportunity to kind of expound upon the project, upon the mission, and, and, and more importantly, to reflect on what I've been doing on the show over the past four years. Because I, t- I took a, you know, a step away from this project for a number of weeks in order to reassess that very thing. So I thought that going back to the beginning and reassessing that project with a fellow traveler, Nick Kiersey, somebody who listens to the show, who's a, a very brilliant political mind in, in his own right. He's uh, He himself, has, as you're about to find, has, has sort of used my guests over the past four years to develop his own kind of unique and idiosyncratic synthesis of, of contemporary politics. And, and that's what I was after. You know, Nick in a weird way, was was one of my target audiences, you know, a, a leftist kind of disaffected university professor, someone who very easily could have just absorbed himself in like careerist pursuits, publishing in journals that nobody ever reads. And instead, he has doubled down on uh, in, in, the, in the kind of messy gray world of realpolitik, right, that we that I open the show and talk about with him here in just a moment. You'll see. Anyway, I'm preceding and prefacing, presaging, what have you, all of these arguments. I'll just give them to you straight. Uh, in the next three hours, you're going to hear it all anyway. The part one is airing today. That is our A side. 
I have agreed to jointly release this with Nick and his fully automated podcast. And then the second part of this interview is going to come as a B-side for the patrons. And I want to give a big shout out to the patrons for abiding this hiatus. Uh, I lost very few of you during that time, which is comforting. It's comforting to know that you guys believe in this project and you understand that we're in this for the long haul and you trust the need to step off the hamster wheel for a moment to reassess. So thanks again to all the patrons who have stuck it out during this uh, five, six, some odd week hiatus. I'm going to be moving forward with DPS as a solo show, going back to the basics. My co-host Ben Burgess uh, is uh, doing his own show. As you guys know, it is wildly successful and I'm really happy for him. I'm really pumped about his success. Uh, Brianna stepping away from the show in order to do some other things and continue her work with uh, Philly DSA's education committee. And I look to look forward to continuing to, to work very closely with uh, Philly DSA and all of those brilliant comrades that are doing really important work up there. But uh, we're going to get back to the basics, folks. It's just the deadest of all pundits having on some guests and some regular contributors having those good long form interviews that you guys have known and loved for damn near four years now. So anyway, enough out of me. Enjoy more of me <laughs> with Nick Kiersey on Fully Automated. Enjoy. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have me, sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this new crazy mother. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Fully Automated, an Occupy IR Theory podcast. So this is episode 26 of Fully Automated. Uh, We've been quiet around these here parts for uh, the last couple of months. Uh, our last guest on, uh, I think it was back in uh, July, was uh, Philip Cunliffe. Uh, this episode, we are joined by Adam Proctor. This is the first half of a two-parter. It wasn't supposed to go... Uh, we, we knew it would go long, but we didn't uh, think it would go quite so long as we would actually end up filling two hour and 15 minute episodes. So there is another episode coming uh, later this week um, on this one. Um, we um, hold back some of the sizzle, some of the extra hot takes uh, for that episode. Uh, so so do stay tuned. Um, in this episode, really, I just sort of get a bit nostalgic with Adam. Uh, we, we go back to the beginning of his show, talk a little bit about how he got started in podcasting, and also reflect on uh, some of the, uh, shall we say, public intellectual functions that his show has fulfilled. So you're going to hear a lot of talk about uh, the racial essentialism debate. Uh, you're going to hear a lot about state theory. And um, Adam has, of course, unique takes on those. Towards the end of this episode, we're going to talk about Greece. Um, Leo Panich and Sam Gindin's interventions on the debate over the Ochi referendum and the question of Greek exit from the European Union. I'm going to keep this intro relatively short, simply because this is a, a long episode and uh, Adam, um, you know, it, it has a lot to say. Just before we get started, though, I you know, it would be remiss for me not to mention that, uh, uh, and, and as I say in the interview, it is interesting to sort of reflect on uh, four years of his show with him. My first episode 
uh, this has of course never really been more than an occasional show but but adam of course has been a taking podcasting uh, basically as a full-time job uh, the last four years and uh it, it is a really unique uh, product in the marketplace uh, that there's been an explosion of left-wing podcasting uh, uh, since 2016. Um, Adam was there uh, uh, on the ground as part of that first wave of leftist podcasting in that in that moment. Uh, of course, there'd been left-wing podcasts before 2016. I mean, you could sort of talk about the first golden age of podcasting all back in 2008, if not beforehand. And, and we get a little bit into some of the history of that, the genealogy of that in this episode. But I will say that um, Adam's show, Adam's niche, uh, the, the, the sort of special um, recipe uh, that he brings to the marketplace with his show, I think no one else is producing that right now. Adam coined the phrase, I think, you know, socialism for ordinary ass people. It's it's not a, a lightweight intellectual show it is a, a real show a serious show uh, that goes deep into a lot of heavy-duty literary matters but it does so in a way that seeks to distill the core uh, messages the core arguments and controversies and debates in a way that's accessible for ordinary people at least uh, as accessible as possible uh, and in that sense i think the show has been tremendously unique what's i think even more unique about the show, however, um, is that you can listen to it as an academic who is interested in, as he says, dusty books, but you find such an iconoclastic and unique distillation of these debates. Uh, Adam is someone who's been in academia, but he, he left it. He had the good sense to get out, so to speak. And um, that has liberated him a little bit from being sort of um, chained to expected uh, genuflections that uh, one is supposed to sort of symbolically uh, make um, before the, the the high priests of the discipline of political science and whatnot. Uh, I think um, certainly there's going to be an episode of on, on that question coming up in this show uh, sometime in the next couple of months um, because it's going to be really interesting to watch what happens with political science. You know, assuming Biden gets elected as the next president of the United States, you know, what is the position of political science going to be in relationship to that presidency, given that so much of the discipline has been uniquely in the bag of that sort of uh, Rachel Maddow, you know, centrist liberal, centrist dad, uh, hot take kind of ethos. But Adam has never been uh, a slave to that um, requirement. And so, uh, you know, what what you get with his show is something uh, quite from the heart, which is something I've always appreciated. And yeah, I, I have to say, I've learned a lot from listening to his show. I am a, a very big fan. And I, you know, I'm, I'm saying that as someone, you know, with a PhD and, you know, someone who's written a lot of stuff um, over the years in my own scholarly way. I feel Adam's show, um, along with maybe a couple of other shows that came out in 2016, you know, gave me uh, definitely a new sense of purpose in my academic life, a new sense of who I was as a writer, and a new sense of what uh, the goalposts were for me as an academic. And, um, you know, I'm really glad for, for the, the, the commitments that um, I've been able to find uh, in the discipline as a result of that kind of rethinking of my purpose. So anyway... Um, Enough about that from me. Um, 
really, really glad and excited to have Adam on the show. I hope you enjoy this one. It's been a long time coming. It is a long one, but that is because I think there was a lot to cover here. And uh, yeah, so this is a reflection on four years um, with the deadest pundit of all, Adam Proctor. Um, I hope you enjoy the show. Adam Proctor, thank you very much for coming on Fully Automated. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's wonderful to have you. Thank you. And uh, I just really wanted to get started today with um, kind of getting to know you a bit better. I've been on your show a little bit, and um, we threatened to have you on in Revenge quite some time ago. So this has been a long time coming. But uh, long-time listeners to this show will, will know I've given you a shout-out a couple of times here and there. Our shows started roughly around the same time, although, of course... It became practically a full-time job for you, and you were putting out regular episodes for a very, very long time. Uh, you're on a brief hiatus right now, I understand, but um, I, I think you'll be you'll be back in the hot seat pretty soon. So this is maybe a good opportunity, seeing as you're taking a time out, to do some reflection together on where the show came from, what it means to you to to work on that show, what your goals are with it. And we can get into all of that stuff in the in the coming hour or so. But um, maybe we can just start with you yourself. Uh, how did you become the Adam Proctor that most people know today through your show? Well, it depends on who you ask, what, who that Adam Proctor is, I guess, you know, such as the state of the online left. But uh, mm-hmm. I guess my own, my own version of that story is, uh, you know, um, uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a child, a product of, of the Great Recession of 2008, 2009 in that respect. And that um, I sort of radicalized during that moment and in terms of identifying and recognizing the, the various class dynamics and the different life outcomes and life chances that are in many cases predetermined in accordance with uh, your class background. Um, you know, I, I do have a, a working class, a sort of what I don't know, sociologists might call a, a lower middle class upbringing. You know, I that's to say my, my father didn't work in a coal mine. Uh, my mother wasn't in like a, you know, a, a, a trade factory where, you know, people are sewing garments or whatever kind of like cliched, uh, like overwrought working class stereotype that might circulate in the cultural imaginary. But my, 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 my father is a, a minister, actually, something I've talked really? about quite a bit. So, so this religious something background I, in your family. That's right. Yeah. I talked wow. about this with uh, Jacobin editor, Mikey Utrecht. Uh-huh. Who, uh huh. Who Micah has also discussed. His father is uh, a minister as well, um, uh, Lutheran, if I'm not mistaken. I, I can't remember. I'm sorry, but both Protestant ministers, and we've, we, I've reflected with him on my show on a couple occasions about how mm-hmm. that sort of informed my upbringing, and um, and and you know perhaps this is a digression from your question, but I no, do think that that that, um, that Protestant upbringing and sort of running up against the contradictions of the, the Christian faith that's highly overdetermined by a, uh, a, a Protestant uh, ethic, if you will, or um, certainly a capitalist ideology, um, those contradictions were, were very, you know, were quite formative for me in my early years. I, I, I viewed them early on in my sort of pre-teens, my tweens, as just being like hypocritical, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what is it? Feed the hungry, clothe the naked, shelter the homeless. And and yet dot, dot, dot. You look at <laughs> modern institutionalized Christianity and they seem to be concerned with with everything else but that. Right. Yeah. Especially and in America. So, it's amazing. Especially in America. It's unbelievable. The prosperity gospel and the sort of um, interweaving of, of, of religion with um, sort of legitimating 
forms of barbarism, right? Essentially, you know, yeah. just workaday forms of capitalist barbarism. Right. Um, you know, sprinkling, sprinkling a little love and charity on top of the exploitation and immiseration of, of billions of people across the country or the world even, you know, and, uh, and that was something that stood out to me as, as, as a, as a, as a child who was coming into, you know, my teenage years and, and then adulthood. Um, I didn't have the language, however, to articulate that right, uh-huh, or understand uh-huh. that. And so this kind of emerging consciousness is something that I've been very patient with in a lot of respects. And it's formed kind of my, my political approach with Dead Pundit Society and, and, mm-hmm. and, and elsewhere. And, and that um, a lot of people are going to have those moments and a lot of people had, have, have had those moments. And their radicalization and their process of development um, is uneven, right? It's highly mm-hmm. uneven, which, you know, dot, 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 we're skipping many decades here. But, you know, we'll lead you to, to things like, you know, people um, – smearing, uh, you know, Joe Rogan's endorsement of Bernie Sanders, for example. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so we can, we can tie modern, you know, modern or contemporary controversies rather with, with things that happened, you know, when I was 11 years old, right. That are deeply held and deeply uh, felt because of the way that I understand consciousness to be a, a, a winding spirally, uh, <laughs> uneven rocky path rather than a sort of a something that you know, was delivered unto me, uh, by my parents or their, or, or something like that. Um, you know, um, I'm not a red diaper baby. Um, I'm, I'm not no. a, you know, I, I wasn't born with a intellectual liberal spoon in my mouth. I had to earn this stuff. And so yeah, I, I give a lot more grace along those lines, but, um, back to the formative years, my father was a, as a minister, my, my mother's a school teacher. So, um, you know, the, the strike action I've seen from teachers has been really heartening lately, hmm. uh, on those terms. So I had the, the, the sort of base raw materials of consciousness when the great recession hit. Right. So when I started looking for answers about like, why am I in such debt? Why is it that people have told me if you just do all the right things and take all the right boxes, you'll get to where you want to go. And, uh, why is this quote, you know, this meritocracy so busted up and broken? Why did we go so terribly wrong at some point in human history to end up uh, spending the vast majority of our uh, days toiling and miserable, Right. right. Rather than right. Uh, enjoying one another in, in nature and in, in in discovering ourselves and chasing our passions. You know, these are just sort of basic questions that I was asking myself. And um, thanks to the recession, I found radical politics. Yeah. And um, this is where, you know, my my. Can you talk to us a little bit about finding yeah. radical politics and what that meant? Like, was it a certain book? Was it a certain organization? Uh, did you meet certain individuals or what? You know, because as you're saying that the rump consciousness yeah. was there, you didn't have the language. So when yeah. does the language, what, what crystallized the language or began that for you? This is where uh, my uh, love affair with dusty books um, yeah. <laughs> intersected. One of your favorite phrases on your show. That's right. That's right. Uh, you know, people will know that my show is a very kind of idiosyncratic and strange mix of like kind of uh, folksy. Uh, it you is. Know, every 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 person, every man, to use a gendered term, uh, socialism with like highfalutin intellectual dusty books and, and the like. You know, and so. I uh, was an aspiring grad student at the time. That's when we were, you and I were both at Virginia Tech at the same time. Uh-huh. And uh, my desire to uh, to refine and hone my intellectual skills in that yeah. moment aligned with, you know, hey, well, let me read as many dusty books as I can, and maybe I'll I'll make something of myself, right? This kind of naive, uh, whatever approach of a of a twenty twenty one year old looking to have a career in academia. And so everybody kept mentioning this Marx fellow, uh-huh. and maybe this would be a really fruitful engagement with like post-Marxism, right? Yeah. That this was absolutely like the hegemonic approach to, you know, any sort of radical politics in academia at the time. I mean, mm-hmm. you were, 
we are literally at the same institution at the same time, studying under the same people. And and post Marxism or whatever falls under the sign that sign, you know, was the dominant approach. Um, Absolutely. And if, if if the, the the Great Recession and the uh, in Occupy, I mean, this show is sort of an homage yeah. to Occupy in, in yeah. many respects. Yeah. If it did anything, it was to to bring post Marxism back to its political economic roots mm-hmm. um, and to ground it in real phenomenon, right? As opposed to a much more esoteric and abstract world of of theory, right? Which dominated coming out of the 1980s. And you know me, I've got nothing wrong with theory, right? I mean, anybody right. who's I've taken state theory and all the rest of it very seriously in theories of neoliberalism as I've had you on my show to articulate. But that's to say that, you know, that was that was the moment when um, the the real politique sort of intersected, uh, you know, um, decisively with the theoretical uh, universe inside of um, academia, you know, where where the left went to hide or to uh, lick its wounds coming out of the 1980s, you know, um, the academic left, that is. That's um that's something I feel I can just to jump in there. I feel I can really relate to some of that story because uh I didn't come from uh an academic family either. Certainly, you know, more working class for sure. And uh that kind of phrase you used earlier on of like having to earn it, you know, to earn yeah. your intellectual chops like it it's um, I'm not necessarily saying I'm all that good or even, but like it's the the point is whatever I have I it came through you know, from zero, you know, from, from, from scratch. And I wonder, does it, does that sort of demand of you a a certain degree of patience, a certain sort of flexibility with other people with, um, you know, who, who may be in the same place, you know, and, and, and is that, is that maybe one of the things that makes your show so compelling that, that it, it comes from that place of, of understanding and I maybe it's hackneyed to say compassion, but let's use it anyway. Right. It's, it's, uh, you know, who your audience is, uh, even if that's not your audience, you know, who you want, you want your audience to be. And it's, it's a, it's a reaching out to people in a very sort of, t- to make ideas and dusty books alive, but in this non-academic way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, I mean, first of all, it's very kind of you. I don't know. I, sometimes it's probably, you could probably tell me what I'm trying to do with my show better than I could. Right? Oh, because, okay. Then I'll tell you. <laughs> because to me, <laughs> right? Because to me, uh, you know, it's 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 more of an intuition, right? And mm-hmm. For you, you can just sort of describe what you've witnessed over the past several years. Like this right. is what you do, Adam. Like, and then you're, you're sort of saying, I guess I I guess I do do that, right? And I guess you're onto something there. Um, it's, it's sort of less again, but 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 that also that's also the thing, right? It's sort of when you you just you know the story you shared about your life, I I, I share that as well, and it's it's a more you sort of follow an intuition rather than any existing roadmap. Um, that's not, look, I'm not like, this sounds a little, this could sound very self-indulgent if we take it too far. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're not, we didn't pull ourselves okay. up our bootstraps. We didn't, you know, we're not self-made men. We're not, yeah, we've had privilege no, for sure. We, we've absolutely had moments. We've leaned on people just like everybody else. Um, but, but that's to say that I do think that people like you and I are, are probably a little bit more, uh, as my grandmother might've said in Appalachia, ornery than most, uh, or ornery, <laughs> she would have said, let's be, yeah. let's be specific. Yeah. Uh, uh, more ornery than most, more willing to um, be iconoclastic than most, more willing to sort of pave our own road than most because uh, we didn't sort of have an existing structure, you know, sort of uh, mm-hmm. placed upon us to, to to come up in. We had to sort of blaze our own trail. And, yeah. and again, at, at the risk of sounding overly self-congratulatory, I do think that there are distinctions to be made among a certainly left academics right. where I think you could very easily break up that that group into into two camps where – 
one group well, who sort of had to earn it and, and the other group um, that for better or worse, grew up inside of um, a cultural, socioeconomic, whatever, uh, you know, arena wherein uh, this was sort of the thing to do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. That might break no, down no, upon further inspection, th- but. that That's fine. We can actually come back to that in a minute because I, I, I want to ask you later on um, about your sort of your own take on on what it means to have a public intellectual function which i think your show really actually does have and um that's why i personally support you and 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 your work but i just want to actually sort of now just sort of focus on the the sort of genealogy of the show itself dead pundit society maybe you can just tell us a little bit about where the idea for the show came from um how did it start because now we we know a little bit now about why you're a socialist and what your values are maybe what we don't know is how that kind of con- how that came together in a in a podcast uh, in 2016 of all times which was kind of um a wave moment for left podcasting um we can talk a little bit about that in a minute but you know you certainly were by no means the only left podcast to come out in 2016 there's been others since but there was a particular moment then i think it was in and around of course the first bernie sanders campaign so you know were you aware of that wave happening around you you were kind of in there at the very beginning of it so i wonder was it sort of like were you responding to something that you saw that other people were doing that maybe you thought you could do better or do differently um, or what, what was happening there? Uh, we have to go back even further. And it occurs to me that, right, I'm sure you'd be happy to do that because I'm all mm. over the place and I'm unstructured and I'm going to need you to rein me in at various intervals. So let's do this. Uh, let's do but it. we have to go back even further. Okay. Uh, when I, uh, you know, was sort of reading dusty books in coffee shops alone and, 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 and being a bouncer at uh, the local whiskey joint and then, a, and then a bartender and, and all the rest of it. I did uh, not know you'd been a bartender. <laughs> Ah, bouncer, bartender, bar manager, uh, you know, uh, part-time uh, local meathead brawler, you know. Uh, <laughs> I love it when people try to put me in boxes based on what they know about me on the podcast. It's like I, I've always been a, a the kind of the kind of guy who's had his feet in a lot of different uh, social and arenas. But um, okay. yeah, so I sort of live this mixed mixed existence, you might say, as like a dusty academic and and also you know. A, just a good old uh, whiskey bar bouncer at the same time, checking IDs and roughing up undergrads and town drunks when they needed to be. Uh, and they're looking for a fight. So okay. uh, I found the ISO in, uh, <clears throat> okay. in 2000 in 2009, the International Socialist Organization, which is now defunct, mm-hmm. a, um, a casualty of perhaps its own success and, and, and its own uh, and the left's own demons, which we will certainly, I'm sure, talk about very soon. And it's sort of a post-Trotskyist organization, and it was the on, one of the only games in town in 2009. And right. uh, they had a, a website called socialistworker.org. And that, right. you know, I'm a very proud and decisive moment in my development was when I, I changed uh, CNN.com as my homepage to socialistworker.org as my homepage. <laughs> I remember thinking to myself, that was as formative as like receiving your first uh, you know, socialist uh, organization membership card yeah. um, in the mail. And, and from then on out, it was it was done. I was won over to that narrative. I was won over to their uh, account of the immiseration of the working class and, and the, their account of the, the Great Recession. And they just explained things to me um, in ways that just made a lot of sense. Basic critiques of American liberalism, right, um, mm-hmm. that that uh, uh, organs and outlets like Jacobin, uh, you know, do today and, mm-hmm. and, and Chapo Trap House. Right. Of course. Um, yeah. You know, uh, it's, it, it, providing better accounts of the things that plague and piss us off, right? 
And uh, I was active in the organization. I started a couple chapters here, there, and everywhere and involved in my own sort of uh, sectarian battles along the way and made friends and probably a lot more enemies. And you know how that goes when you're in a, oh, yeah. uh, a leftist organization that meets in dusty church basements. You know, you think the thing to do would be to sort of work together and build the organization. Instead, you end up fighting and squabbling amongst yourselves and mm-hmm. uh, sp- splitting into ever smaller uh, factions along the way. It's really silly. I went to the York University to study under Leo Panitch, um, who people who watch the, the show, master. listen to the show, yeah. will know that um, he's, a, he's a, a friend and mentor of mine, um, Leo Panitch, the uh, editor of the Socialist Register. Right. Um, uh, the uh, student of, of Ralph Miliband and then, and then co-editor with Ralph Miliband of the Socialist Register. Mm. Um, and while at York, I not only had the opportunity to uh, study under Leo and, and do deep, deep dives into uh, global political economy and all the rest of it, mm-hmm. um, uh, study the Great Recession and, and, and learn about the, you know, the, the history of social movements and socialist organizations and parties. And, but I also was involved in the most militant public sector trade union in North America, which is QP3903. Uh, oh, representing wow. representing uh, grad students and instructors in uh, at York University, and we went on strike, a bitter strike for a month, and that was kind of my my first direct sort of shop floor trade union experience. And uh, in the course of that, um, I, w- I was able to blend my sort of socialist organizing, uh, agitating um, my intellectual pursuits, and and now sort of my shop floor workers movement uh, kind of uh, chops. That's very interesting. Um, and, and, and that, so that, that, that sort of trifecta, um, is carried forward today into DPS, right? The, the, those three emphases really were combined in, in such a way in my show. And so to get back to your question in 2016, um, I didn't want to be a podcaster. I don't want to look Nick, like, I don't want any of this shit. (laughs) I I know you're lying to me right now. If if you, if you could, no, but if you can understand anything, it's that I wanted to build an, I wanted to build institutions. I wanted to uh, connect people and create something that was sorely needed in the United States, which is the, the beginnings of like a socialist party, a socialist organization. And I thought to myself, before we can do that, we have to get our heads uh, wrapped around a certain kind of agenda. Yeah. And uh, it's sort of a phrase that I coined, I invented, but I sort of claimed it for myself. DPS was going to be the home of the new left agenda. And now what that means, you know, was, was up for um, – you know, up for debate at the time, but what the new left agenda ultimately ended up being was this kind of combination of, of, you know, uh, intense study and analysis of the workers movement, you know, uh, intense study of political economy, state theory, anti-essentialism and, and, and getting back to uh, a socialist movement that was rooted in, in the, uh, the pursuit of uh, institution building and the capture of state power. And, and moreover, answering the question of what does that mean in an era where, Certainly indeed, if not also in thought, the left has jettisoned the idea of more kind of centralist, Leninist, anti-democratic models of socialism, right? right? What would it mean to embark on a democratic road to socialism, given that things like as fraught as they are, human rights and democratic values and the, the public sphere, these are all liberal notions for sure, but yes, we all subscribe course. to them in some degree, yeah. right? Um, as socialists as well. Um, we just want to push them further. Mm-hmm. Um, what would, what would a socialist transition look like whilst holding on to the, the most key components of, of, of freedom of speech and thought and action? This was what the new left agenda was all about for me. And I felt like I didn't want to do it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, very uncomfortable with being a, a public figure. 
even today, even at this very, very, very small level of like sort of like, mm. you know, a micro internet niche celebrity that people like you and myself enjoy or suffer from. Yeah, nevertheless, uh, I would say that, um, you know, I, I, this is not a question I had planned on asking you, but um, as as modest as you're being right there, uh, it's it's funny how the name of your show uh, and your name pops up from time to time in conversations that, I, you know, listening to oftentimes just like a show that I wouldn't expect it. Someone like Nando Avila is going to be on there. And, you know, he's always giving you like recognition as someone who, for example, connected him to other kinds of podcasters and shows. And, you know, uh, I, I hear that kind of commentary in, in other areas and arenas as well. So, um, you know, it, it, it may be a kind of a, a, a I'm not sure I, I'll use your own phrase you know a, a, a minor public figure status or something but you know it's definitely um, I think it speaks to the unique niche that your show occupies and the values that you're bringing to it and the guests that you work so hard to get on your show and the in-depth rich conversations that you have um uh, it's the quality itself, I think. And I'm not just trying to sort of blow up your head here, uh, but you know, well, it's, well, um, let me tell you where that comes from because I'm, again, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm very whatever, uncomfortable of whatever. I mean, I, I guess I don't deserve any of that, but let me tell you where it comes from. Uh, I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fantastic, I'm not so much an innovator. I'm a fantastic, um, conveyor belt though. I think <laughs> that's why, that's where I excel. Uh, give me a break. I, I excel at at uh, taking things that are said behind closed doors and whispered in dark back alleys yeah. and, and and trying to bring them into the mainstream. And so, because of my position as uh, as a as a, a student of Leo Panitch and being connected in that sort of like elite world that I never really felt I belonged in, and I'm not, still not sure that I do. And, and because of of my connections in the trade union movement resulting from the QP3903 strike, I mean, I serve in the executive council. I was a, a leading member of the um, the successful, the the final iteration of the the, the committee that goes, the bargaining committee is what we called it. And I just found myself making connections in the, in the, up, the quote upper stratum of, of sort of the left, which was at, at that time highly academic or, or focused around Jacobin. And I was having the most fascinating and important and groundbreaking conversations behind closed doors in chat rooms, you yeah. know, and on, 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 on Facebook Messenger, um, on, you know, in, 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 group texts on WhatsApp, right? Um, I was also active in the Palestinian justice community at, at a very high level and, 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 you know, working in having a lot of experience and a lot of access to a lot of people who were just incredibly interesting. Mm. And so I started the podcast because I wanted to, I wanted to take those, those back channel conversations and, uh, and give other people the opportunity to be a fly on the wall during those back channel conversations. Because I remember mm -hmm. you guys could probably search this. You Google it yeah. if you want to embarrass me. But uh, I want to say 2014, I started a, a very unsuccessful uh, an abortive project called uh, the Socialist Media Project. Okay. Um, because I absolutely, it, it may have been 2012, 2013. Um, it was sort of a blog. And what I was doing at the time is I was just devouring any and all long form socialist content that I could find on the internet. Mm. And that's funny these days. That's hilarious because <laughs> if you tried to even just pay attention to what came out last week, right? You're overwhelmed. Hours. Yeah. There aren't enough hours in, 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 in the day. Yeah. Uh, but, but in those days, I mean, you had to scour YouTube. You had to scour the podcast sphere. And, um, you know, Doug Henwood was Doug was doing Henwood. It, yeah. Nobody else, nobody else was doing it to, to Henwood's credit. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, you know, I, um, I can well remember uh, listening to Doug show on on my iPod on yep. my very long drives to my first ever job as a professor at uh, at a small liberal arts place in in Virginia. In Wise, yeah, you're yeah, in Wise, Wise County. Wise. That's twenty years yeah. ago, <laughs> yeah. unreal. Jesus, it breaks uh, my heart. I, I don't ago. know that Doug listens to this show, but if he is. Uh, I think we're both very much in your debt. I think we both very much acknowledge that. Uh, for yeah, yeah, for, Doug, for, Doug and I have a, a conflicted present, but our past is uh, pretty decisive in terms of yes. him being a very big influence on me. Um, I do think you know, um, yeah, I, I would download his show on yeah. on, on my iPod Shuffle. Right? Uh, yeah, yeah, and and take it to the gym and like run on the treadmill or whatever. Yeah. Right, you know, like I think a lot of us had my that bartending, yeah. my bartending gig, you know. Um, and, uh, and, and it, that, I, that's why I love when people say, you know, Hey, I was stocking shelves the other day at work and I was listening to the latest episode of DPS. I fucking love that shit. Cause like I did that right. I you know, 2012, 2013, 2010. And, and so the socialist media project came about as an attempt to just catalog the lectures and the interviews that I had found, uh, by scouring the internet, you know, um, yeah. to catalog it not only for myself, but for others. And I tried to categorize them. And, and that was if you if you go back and you can find it, it, it may still be up somewhere. I don't know. Um, hmm. uh, and you, you find those those uh, lectures. You're going to see people. You're going to be like, holy shit. You know, as in 2012, uh, Leo Panich, Sam Gendon, Adolph Reed Jr., uh, Vivek Chibber, um, yeah. you know, uh, other other people in the, you know, uh, Jane McAleve was in there. Um, a number of people from the, the trade union movement, other political economists that, you know, are all sort of, uh, obviously David Harvey. I was mm-hmm. working through, uh, the Capitol lectures with David Harvey, which was a, a free project that was as formative to my, my, uh, my, uh, socialist transition transformation, if you will, as anything. I mean, let's mm-hmm. give proper shouts out to David Harvey here because he was the guy who, who made all of these dusty books and heady ideas really accessible to the generation that was, that would emerge from, from Occupy. I don't know how formative he was to your study of capital volume one, um, and others, but, uh, mm, yeah, you know, I, I went to New York city for a short time and, and studied under him and I studied capital volume two, strangely uh, enough. I was like, who, who the fuck reads capital volume two? I studied capital volume heard. two with, uh, Richard Wolf, Rick Wolf, no way. who's, who's now really made a name for himself and, yes. in the, and rightly so as a brilliant, uh, commentator. Right. Right. Um, and so th- these are kind of the OGs, right? Let's give the credit where it's due. Let's, you know, mm-hmm. Rick Wolf, uh, you know, David Harvey, Leo Panich, Adolph Reed, uh, Doug Henwood. These people were the, we're going to, we got to throw Liza in there. Liza Featherstone. Of course. Um, Christian, Christian Parenti, mm-hmm. obviously his, his father, Michael. These are the people who, who held the, you know, kept the flame burning, held the torch for, yeah. for us. Um, but now if, anyway, yeah, if you go back to the socialist media project, you're going to find the very beginnings of that socialist, um, that, that new left agenda that I sort mm-hmm. of, um, uh, tried to stake out. And I wanted to bring those back channel conversations out in the open. And, um, I wanted to have those more candid risky takes out in the open because I do believe in, uh, the free circulation of ideas. I do believe that, uh, we need to be able to, to debate and discuss. I do believe that, um, we need to have no fear and, and are, you know, and articulate ourselves clearly and openly and may the best, uh, may the best argument win in, in that, in that, you know, scrum that, you know, that results. And, um, I discovered very quickly that there wasn't much of a tolerance of that on the left. I believe it was by episode six or seven. I had ruffled many feathers with my freedom of speech series that featured, um, 
Christian Parenti, a person I just named. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe I had on Freddie DeBoer, who was yeah. uh, talking about the, those episodes, yeah. um, the absurdity of, of thinking that we could uh, punch our way, punch our way to socialism or something, uh, punching the Nazis thing. And then, of course, Angela Nagel, who um, is somebody with whom, you know, I, 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 I thought Kill All Normies was a really, really fantastic, important contribution. And I do think that she has become a victim of the discourse and the way that it's unfolded since. Um, mm. Yeah. Well, I'd love to come back to, because um, I know like one of your recent uh, sort of, um, you know, your show is always really good for these pithy, catchy phrases that you use, you pepper them in episode to episode over a period of time and uh you know they can really begin to resonate and i i I know some of them are like very unique to you i but i don't know if this one is unique to you but it's it's this idea of taking up residence in the basement of the vampire castle which of course is a a play on mark fisher's term and i want to come back to that later but uh, i i think um just for now though um i kind of i want to stay in that um those early episodes that you were talking about um uh, you know, when, when DPS was really making a, a brand for itself and it was finding that niche and it, it was really, I think, one of the very first shows to, to bring that kind of public intellectual function to that very small aspect of the left, uh, which, um, you know, w- w- was talking or thinking about race reductionism and that kind of thing. Um, I mean, I can even remember myself listening to the show hearing you talk about race reductionism and going like, Oh, holy shit, has he gone too far here? You know, because at the time, you know, I have to admit, like it just, it wasn't something that had been on my menu. Uh, I wasn't even really aware of, um, I mean, I'd, I'd heard, um, you know, maybe, maybe heard, um, Adolf Reed speak on Doug's show or something here and there. And, you know, just maybe not listened as deeply as obviously you had listened because you were building these whole like series that you, you weren't just doing one show on it. You were doing extended, as you called them, series. And I wonder, could you just sort of like take us through the thought process of putting those series together for something like race re- reductionism, seeing as we're speaking about it, and then also the reaction and and I'm not you know again this is like just to sort of put the listener in a in a in a in a reference here or in a frame of reference to the idea that um, these are kind of I mean I mean, I, th- I I will say this to the listener I think Adam has in a sense done and, and, and along with maybe a number of other podcasts but but certainly and especially Dead Pundits was one of the sort of like really early cutting edge. Um, um, mechanisms for popularizing these ideas, which I think I've even like for sure uh, taken to heart since then and found very useful and profitable in in terms of like um, theoretical um, toolboxes to work with um, as we've entered into this year, especially um, and and contemporary debates about cancel culture and all of this. But, but I, and I know Adam that that must've cost you a lot you know, to, to put yourself out there, to, to be the kind of lightning rod at that early stage where the left really wasn't used to being challenged in this way. And I mean, I, again, even myself listening to those early shows going like, Oh, I don't know what I feel about this. You know, this is, you know, so, so race reductionism as a concept, obviously very controversial. What did, did, did you have a strategy in mind for getting us from A to B as listeners for that show? 
Um, the anti-essentialism uh, series was the result of, of kind of the, the one of the original impetuses of the show. Um, I had started another uh, abortive attempt uh, to start this show with a number of other people in uh, several months before doing DPS. I had absolutely no – and I mean this really. I, mm-hmm. I, I'm still uncomfortable with doing the show by myself. I don't want to be a public figure. I had no desire to do that. It was supposed to be a, a collective group uh, undertaking. Uh, oh, I remember. Two, two guys uh, who started um, – Oh, for God's sakes! What was the name of what was the name of their website, Nick? I'm I'm blanking on it now. Yeah, I know. It was I know the uh, R.L. Stevens who became yeah. who went on to become something. Uh, let's just say very different and move on very quickly from that. Right. And another guy by the name of Drew Franklin who who uh, briefly ran for D.C.'s uh, city council among yeah. other things. And they were friends and comrades of mine at the time. Uh, it's funny how the left has fractured and broken and changed in such a short period of time. But we set out to do a podcast together. Yeah. And we're very consciously uh, sort of um, modeling ourselves after Chapo. And they sort of said, well, you, whatever, you're well spoken. You can kind of be like Will, right? Like Will Menneker. You <laughs> you're the Will Menneker. Introduce the show. And yeah. you've got a radio voice. And, uh, and then, you know, RL will sort of provide the flavor and the color because he was a big personality who turned right. out to be uh, some, which turned out to be uh, somewhat disordered. Uh, okay. uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I'm, uh, then, I'm aware of some of the stuff there. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. Uh, if, uh, pardon the inside baseball. And, and Drew was to be, you know, sort of the, the guy uh, offering this other analysis. And, and they were we, the three of us were, were really up on uh, the anti-essentialism stuff long before anybody else. And this was when Tani Hesey Coates was uh, really um, the the flavor of the week or the mm-hmm. year uh, or the years in that moment in terms of being like the end all be all uh, analyst of race. And let's 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 go back and, and remember that, you know, this wasn't, uh, you know, um, uh, like, you know, uh, a, a couple of radicals against the world. I mean, this was, you know, uh, Cornell West was was debating with with Tani. I remember right? yeah. old old leftists and the old, uh, you know, uh, black leftists, uh, black socialists who have been around for decades were, were coming up against this stuff. Mm-hmm. What I, I again saw myself as a conveyor belt mm-hmm. of, for that generation, for Adolf's generation, for Cornell's generation, Dr. West, uh, to bring that message um, to to the millennials, uh, you know, the Gen Xers of, of, of the group who um, – who, you know, that was being drowned out in the, in the popular discourse by, by, by sort of liberal intersectionality, um, mm-hmm. hyper academic, uh, hiker, hyper academic, academicized. Sure. sure. Go for it. Uh, sure. Why not? Um, you know, uh, visions of, of, of kind of schematic sort of race, class, gender, the holy, tr- I just uh, crossed myself for the <laughs> listener did. who, who. I'm looking at him on video. He did cross himself. (laughs) I'm a terrible, I'm not a Catholic. I'm a Protestant, as we've mentioned. I don't even know how to cross myself appropriately, but I always try to cross myself when I mention the appropriate catechism. Yeah, of race, class, gender. And and I don't mean to mock the importance of the three, but I do think that uh, intersectionality as a a slogan uh, inadvertently ends up mocking the three of them by uh, treating them in a very schematic slogan, sloganeering sort of way rather than deep historical and political economic engagements with the roots of these problems and then also giving us, you know, ways out of, mm-hmm. of, of the of the problem. And so anti-essentialism was the first way of trying to articulate that not only for for my audience, but also for myself. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I've always done is always gone to go to the source. And so I wanted to talk to people. I, mm-hmm. I ended up talking to Adolf Reed and ended up talking to Pascal Robert, who was a, right. a really interesting commentator. <laughs> uh, ended up talking to um, a, a number of people during that time. Cedric Johnson to talk about his his piece on on the Black Panthers. You know, that uh, was the Panthers were somebody that came yeah. up uh, admiring and, and wanting to emulate. And he wrote this fantastic piece for Catalyst Journal and Jacobin Magazine saying – 
then I know the Panthers actually can't save us now. Like yeah. we don't need to go back to this um, aesthetic, aestheticized version of black power. We need to uh, go beyond that and, and, and into more universalist policies around socialist emancipation for all. Um, and, and that uh, we shouldn't actually get bogged down and in the more kind of identitarian race reductive um, fallacies uh, of 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 those generations. And um, I don't know where yeah, I know because uh, I think he's you know, it, it's a, it, again, this in, was Nick. the unique. <laughs> no, but I just I think this was the unique uh, point that that kept kind of uh, scratching at my brain in that in that as I was listening to that whole series and I, I listened as carefully as I could. Uh, I had many of those sort of running on the treadmill moments where I'm kind of like uh, are doing my groceries as you were talking about and going like, huh, man, like that's a that's an empirical point. Like I have to deal with that in the way I look at the world. Like my my theory has to be able to accommodate this. And I remember that Cedric Johnson interview specifically where he's talking about you know, if we're going to talk about intersecting forms of power, we have to recognize that these each of these forms of power has its own history, its own development, its own right. uh, kind of uh, po- political linkages with um, ongoing political economy. And of course, then he hits with the hammer, which is, you know, there is today such a thing as uh, a, 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 an emerging black middle class. It's, it's quite numerous. Um, you know, he hits you with that point that he always uses, you know, that there's more African-Americans in the United States than there are Canadians in all Canada. And we never speak about them as having one common political subjectivity. Yeah. And so it's when you, that's when you actually like, I'm not a big fan of the term intersectionality, but if, if, if we just sort of use it as a, as a sort of a way of describing how power operates in the world tentatively, then you, you immediately start to see that, um, this emerging middle class isn't going to be making the it in other words it sort of torpedoes the idea of a common set of demands yeah, um yeah. <clears throat> and I just you're right and to, to, to just to put a finer point on it to me i know what you mean by emerging middle class but if you go back i mean this has been the case since reconstruction actually that the class stratification of the african-american community in the united states has has um has um you know uh, i don't say dictated but has abs- absolutely deeply influenced the trajectories of, of even like, you know, uh, cultural, um, you know, uh, cultural identification and signification and all the rest of it, our, our understanding of what it means to be black in America has, has been completely overdetermined by the interests and prerogatives of, of, of upper and ruling class African-Americans since, mm-hmm. since reconstruction, since, since before mm-hmm. emancipation, uh, you had, uh, black intellectuals and, and, and relative upper class folks who, um, were, uh, again, you know, exerting their power and influence over, over all of those aspects. And, um, it's, it's messy. And, and this yeah, is the problem with messy. moralism on the left is that the left, uh, could not then, and unfortunately in many ways still cannot tolerate, uh, complexity, a mess. And mm-hmm. so what you were saying is like, oh, well, you know, uh, there are more, you know, again, there are more African-Americans, more black identified people in the United States than there are, uh, um, uh, citizens of, 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 Canada, the great North. Now, Cedric will say that, uh, that Adolf Reed's uh, son, Toure Reed came up with that. And Toure will say that Cedric came oh, up with really? that. I don't know who did. That's at least that's the, nobody wants to take credit for it, but, uh, it's a critical insight. Um, yeah. but this is where inter- intersectional intersectionalists, if there are such a thing, will say, well, of course that's the case. We've been saying that we've been saying right. that race is, 
um, um, intersected by these other things. And certainly gender, because you know a lot of black uh, 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 feminist scholars have been talking about the influence of misogyny and, and all the rest of it in, mm-hmm. inside of um, you know uh, black culture and politics and, and life. Um, and that certainly is the case. But more often than not, they talk about intersectionality in, in terms of what is perpetrated on the black community from without to the exclusion of nearly all else, really, such that, look, maybe against their their better judgment or what they otherwise know to be true in their heart of hearts, they end up essentializing the, quote, black community. Right. To even be able to use that phrase mm-hmm. is is a is a is a unbelievable gloss mm-hmm. <laughs> on an enormous amount of complexity. And so, so the, the yeah. impulse that, that, that really uh, drove the anti-essentialism series was the, the, the notion that if you care about something, right, you, you don't, you don't <laughs> uh, uh, lean in on the sort of absolutist moralistic aspects of, of, you know, the, the um, homogenous aspects of uh, universal truth and the absolute togetherness of the black community. Instead, you lean in on the heterogeneous components, the differences, the complexity. Like that's how you take something seriously. You know, the, the sort of more child, dare I say childish, this is how it was when I was younger anyway. Things are more black and white. And, oh, that's absolutely bad. Yeah. We are absolutely just in our cause. Uh, black people are absolutely this. Uh, the working class is absolutely that. And there's a time for that. There's a time for sloganeering. There's a time for serious, deep investigations of complexity as well. And that's what the left has uh, has just sim- quite simply not tolerated because they mistake it for a lack of, I don't know, conviction, right? A lack of um, moralistic uh, certitude. Yeah. Um, and and this is where people like not only myself but much more egregiously Cedric and Adolf and mm-hmm. Toure and so many others get accused of you know quote being Uncle Tom's and and all the rest of it in really disgusting and nasty ways because they dare mm-hmm. to uh, historicize and think about complexity inside of these communities that on the whole are absolutely oppressed, but inside of these communities, they have their own class dynamics. They have their own social dynamics and cultural distinctions and all the rest of it that uh, we do well to understand if we want to get our way out of this thing. Yeah. Well, you, uh, you, you, you have a powerful command of this, uh, this argument, I think. Um, but of course the, uh, the essentialism, pillar of your show is just one among many right. and yeah. uh you know the the other sort of signature moments as i as i think back about four years of your show um you know we couldn't not talk about state theory you mentioned you mentioned um <laughs> earlier on yeah. and um i do i think seeing as i have the privilege of having you on the show um I, I have an obligation i think to ask you about that but i also kind of like there's been other little sort of like tangential moments in the show which i don't know if they got on people's radar but they definitely were noticeable to me like i think there was one or two episodes where you uh went to town on mmt which um you know might not in yeah. be a, a, a high profile moment Ugh. for for many listeners but for me as someone who's kind of struggled back and forth on what it even means to talk about MMT or what the difference between MMT is and Keynesianism um I thought maybe I'd sort of ask you like 
where where you are with that now. So I don't know, like those are kind of two separate questions. Maybe we'll take the yeah. state theory one first and then we can do a sort of a broader Adam Adam Proctor's take on Keynesianism or political economy today kind of <laughs> question. So let's start with state theory maybe and, and um, just uh, sort of see, uh, you know, what the what the vision or the plan for you, just just as we mm-hmm. asked you a moment ago about the, the essentialism uh, series here like what's the vision or the plan for the the state theory series and and uh, f- you know yeah. four years into this project what do you imagine listeners have taken away from you on that this is all obviously post hoc and i'm not sure what i was thinking at the time at the time i wanted to talk what we're really asking you is though. are you a palancis person or a milliband person <laughs> we'll get into that in just a moment to find it for people <laughs> if it makes any sense yeah um you know and, and, and as you ask, ask that question i can sort of find my entryway here people always say like adam why do you care so much about anti-essentialism yeah. Uh, clearly, you know, my uh, uncharitably, they'd say, well, it's clearly because you're a racist and you don't care about racism. It's clearly because you're a misogynist. You don't care about feminism. Mm-hmm. Um, that is the most just like dishonest, uh, uncharitable way to, to approach it. The other way is just say, Adam, you're obsessed. Right. I know you're a good guy. I know you're an anti-racist. I know you believe in equality for all, uh, but you're just kind of a little obsessed and like mm-hmm. it's a little cringy and you get over it. You know, that's that's what my, and I can name names. I won't because I love them. They're friends and comrades, but they they would have said that back then. They know who they are. They may still say it. <laughs> they probably um, right. It, it, it's but but it's because, you know, to me, the proof is in the pudding, because if you look at um, recent events in the way that I think the left was uh, very sadly demobilized, obviously not just by COVID, but also by the latest uh, uprisings uh, in, in the wake of George Floyd and mm-hmm. um, and, and other people, Breonna Taylor um, and in the way that, uh, you know, so I'll say this. It was my finding and, of course, Adolf's finding and Cedric and all the rest of them, the people who I – again, I'm just a conveyor belt – that for whatever reason, anti-racism is how the worst aspects of liberalism are smuggled into the socialist movement in a very unthinking um, and reactive way. And it's not, it's not that we shouldn't be appalled by the, the police, latest police killings. We should be disgusted. It's not that we shouldn't act. Uh, go smash things if you want to. I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it's, uh, maybe, maybe a little, um, a little social unrest is, is warranted and, and might be productive. Um, but, but it is the case undeniably that, that certain aspects, certain, uh, suppositions, certain, um, whatever dictums of liberalism are absolutely smuggled in, um, in that process about, mm-hmm. about, uh, about where, um, racism comes from, about how to combat it. Um, about where it lives, where it comes, you know, um, what to do about it. Um, suddenly all these liberal slogans, uh, are, are suddenly on the tongues of, of people who, who are otherwise really excellent socialists by my estimation. Um, and it would of course take, you know, a number of episodes just to unpack that by exactly what I mean by that. But that's why, so people say, why anti-essentialism? Why are you obsessed? Right. Move on. Why can't you get over it? That's Mm -hmm. why. So then as the correlate of that, of why state theory to get to your question, and at the time, that was how I felt uh, a sort of reflexive, reflexive, and our vaguely anarcho-liberalism was smuggled into socialist movements. Right. It, not only in terms of its thinking about the state and how to transition into some post-capitalist order, but also in terms of how it thinks about uh, institutions. I mean, we do really have to go back all the way back to 2014, you know, know, go in the time machine to really remember what it was like and how um, anti-institutionalist. And I mean, I mean that. You're talking about Occupy, basically. Occupy, right? The the Mm. post-Occupy, what uh, Panitch and Gendon called the the sort of vaguely anarchist uh, zeitgeist. 
mm. that that predominated um, in the left. And and fighting against that current, and it was, it was such a strange thing to have to think about now. But in 2016, 17, when I started DPS, yeah. it was it was incredibly contentious argument to say that state theory matters. Or sorry, that state power matters. Yeah, and state power should absolutely be uh, something that socialists should be very very concerned with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And in the wake of uh, Bernie Sanders' second you know, um, attempt at the, the, the democratic party nominate knee process, uh, you know, that just goes without saying with the, uh, advent of DSA as terms of building institutions and organization that just goes without saying, but, um, it was something that was novel and contentious back in those days. And so to me, state theory was about, um, getting back to the roots of those discussions and thinking very seriously about what, is state power and what is this thing that socialists should be going after and, and therefore how should we go after it and what does it even mean to to make those efforts in a way that can transcend that kind of like you know vulgar that vulgar leninism about smashing the state right. and um storming the barricades and uh placing the ruling class in guillotines which is you know very therapeutic um it's, <laughs> don't get me wrong. I, I have my fantasies as well, but it's certainly not um, a very serious strategy. No, um, well, obviously, th- because things uh, are always in 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 motion, um, it reminds me of that um, quirky little vignette. It's on YouTube of uh, Michael Hart from Hart and Negri. You know, uh, he's rolling yeah. around Central Park and talking about his formative experiences becoming a leftist and. He'd been down in like Nicaragua, whatever, helping some rebel group or something. And, um, you know, at the end of his sojourn with them, uh, he's talking about coming back to America and he asked them, you know, like, he's like, I'm confused. Like, how am I going to be, how am I going to take all this left-wing culture and um, sort of spirit of mutual aid and all these things that I found down here? How am I going to take that? back to the uh, United States and my life there. And they're like, but comrade, it is simple. You, you get rifles and you form a camp in the mountains and you begin to send Michael Hart is just looking at them going like, you know, like, yeah. nah, that's not going to work. You know? Yeah, like, and it's a kind of a cute moment. To, yeah. To, that, that's beautiful. I, I, I have not seen that, but I mean, it, it is amazing because for them, right. So that the, the, um, the West, the quote Western left has always used those movements as, as a, as a kind of a metaphor. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And in that yeah. moment, you see that like they're like, this isn't a fucking metaphor. Go buy a gun yeah. and, and camp out in the mountains. Like <laughs> what part of this is, you know, I mean, really, I mean, that, yeah. this, that's what we're doing. We are putting our lives in the line. We're not over here playing dress up, you know, with mm-hmm. the Zapatistas, uh, you know, like or, or or the Zapatistas aren't playing dress up with the Zapatistas even. Right. Uh, not to besmirch anyone. Of course. Uh, certainly not the recently uh, departed, deceased uh, who were known to do that. But, um, yeah, that's, that's beautiful. I've never seen it. You have to send that to me. I will. I will. It's a fun yeah. little cute. Um, so then what, given that, given that that's been a metaphor for so long, right? Our study of Castro and the Russian revolution and all of these other models, uh, you know, given that that's operationally a metaphor mm-hmm. for the Western left, mm-hmm. what do we do instead? Yeah. And, and to even be exactly. able to talk about it is, 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 is scandalous. And, um, and I, I, you see a lot of this kind of dissonance arising in, in, on, on the online, the hyper online left again in the wake of Bernie's latest failure to win the nomination and therefore, you know, just overhand uh, overnight, whatever, 
uproot a, a long-standing so, so, political system. So that class. actually puts um, a question on the table, I think, which I I hadn't um, hadn't occurred to me to ask you until just this moment. But you know, your show comes along at a certain time. Uh, reflecting on uh, the preconditions, the sort of the, the 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 immediate sort of preceding events that led to uh, that left wing moment, um, the the arrival of your show, the the how it helped people like me sort of rediscover Panitch and uh, people like that and take them seriously as commentators on our time, plus also the fact that people like Panitch were starting immediately to show up in the context of debates about. Greece, Greece's relationship to the European Union. And all of a sudden you start to see this very practical, and I, I bring this up because I was just rereading some of that stuff, uh, Gindan and Panich talking about their position on, on the, the, the Greek, the, the Grexit crisis as it, as it was known at the time in 2015. But the, um, you know, it, it's, it, it can't all have been a coincidence that, that, you know, these things are kind of becoming germane all in and around the same moment. There was, I think, through Corbyn, through Bernie Sanders and, and in other parts of the world too, a sort of, um, ah, people are going to maybe shoot me for saying this, but like, I, I think there was a kind of a discovery of a need for something like a parliamentary socialist left, um, maybe having been absent from the scene for a long time because of the dominance of maybe more horizontalist imaginings of where the left was going to go, uh, frustrations emerging from the failure of that with the Occupy movement, a, a seeming inability to connect with the um, priorities and concerns of maybe more Marxist-Leninist strains or even Trotskyist strains. It seems that there's a kind of um, a new market for a left that was interested in taking state power seriously, having serious conversations about what it would need to build a left that had the capacities to, to, to govern which we hadn't done in a long time and still haven't done, frankly. But, you know, at, at, at the very least, that conversation is now real. So, so, you know, maybe as an assessment four years down the road, what is your take now on, on, on these debates? What a fucking shame we didn't take this stuff more seriously when, they, when we had the chance. Yeah. Do you think the moment has <laughs> um, passed? Is, is that uh, what I'm hearing you say? I think that we missed an enormous and immense opportunity. Yes. And, um, anybody who would sort of use the, you know, the, the sort of, uh, you know, have, have the name of Leo Panich slide out of their mouth and then spit on the ground, you know, afterwards as a, as an example of, um, you know, uh, whatever, um, uh, accommodationism or, um, you know, this word that they like to throw around capitulation, right. Um, can, can you be more concrete like, there? Who, who is yeah, it, Are you talking yeah. about the Greek debate? Are you the Greek debate? The Greek yeah. debate. I mean, I, I went to York mm -hmm. um, in 2012 to study uh, Syriza as a political and political economic phenomenon. Right? Yeah. And 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 they had the opportunity to rise to power um, way earlier than than they wanted to. I mean, that's, they did not want. I mean, you know, if you go back to and, and read. Uh, uh, Alexei Tsipras's uh, statement about sort of throwing uh, their series of throwing its hat in the ring and, and promising to form um, an anti-austerity government in order to do whatever they could do in order whatever they had to do to, quote, stop the bleeding in 2013, uh, they would do it and they were ready to take power. Whereas uh, a lot of people in that um, organization coming from a communist movement, you know, in, in from the from decades before sort of understood that they weren't ready. They hadn't laid the groundwork. They hadn't 
Um, they didn't have the the depth and the trade unions and in society they hadn't uh, had uh, democratic structures and the party um, to manage and control the affairs of the party. And the, the concern was that if they go into government, they won't have the cadres remaining in the party to hold them to account. Right. Right. Um, the, the, the classic, um, 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 I, uh, the, uh, Jesus, what's it? Michelle Robert's, um, I'm, I'm blanking the, uh, ca- the iron cage of oligarchy. I'm, I'm mixing Weber and, um, yeah, and yeah. Michelle's, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, it's late in the day. It's been a long week, but, uh, it'll come, it'll come back to me. Um, the iron law of oligarchy. There it is. Um, wherein, you know, power has a structural, um, effect and impact on, on, uh, structures that sort of lend towards more oligarchic features. And that if you don't have the depth and the cadre development and the education, the political development in the party, in the class at large, when those cadres go into government, there won't be anybody outside of the state, the state proper institutions to hold it to account. To force it to stay true to its to its aims, right? Um, and uh, and that was that was I mean, Panitch and all the rest of them uh, were saying this in 2012 before they even got into government. And so when that inevitably happened, to to point to Panitch as a capitulationist or to say that he's a softy right. who just didn't have the stomach to to take on Grexit is just voluntarist and silly. And I yeah. think you know when you take an economy like Greece, which is um, roughly the size of the state of Louisiana in the United right. States <laughs> and expected to go up against the juggernaut of the European Union um, and the IMF and the Troika and all those other institutions in Germany. I mean, just to say nothing of like, the, you know, the, the EU, but Germany alone yeah. um, would have been preposterous. And, and and this is just more wishful thinking on the part of, of the like hyper academic left in the Western world who would like the, the, the population of Greece to fall on uh, its own sword in order for the, the, the international left to live out a, a brief fantasy of, of, of an insurrectionist moment that was followed by, uh, you know, an utter collapse of a people and a culture and a state. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, <laughs> be not very charitable and I'm not representing the debate very fairly. I recognize that, but no, um, but I think it's, a, it's, it's a, it's an under, um, underrepresented perspective within that debate and uh, you know um not to to necessarily toot my own horn here but i you know if listeners are interested i can post some stuff i've written on this um in in previous years but which which might give some useful context on on where i stand which is a, a kind of a, a unique um micro contribution to this where i kind of bring in Foucault, blah, blah, blah. But it it, it doesn't really necessarily matter too much for for what we're talking about here. The point I think that we're trying to take away is that um, we have sort of seen a stylistic inflection in the left where at least some um, iconoclastic voices seem to uh, uh, be, um, you know, at, at great personal expense to their reputations because they get trolled online. Uh, but um, seem to be taking stances which um, are, I, I think, slowly, slowly uh, gaining some momentum, and um, and hopefully that will continue. But I suppose the, the question, foreshadowed by Adam's response, is is whether that's too late now? Because of course we are, we yeah. are. You, I, I, you're sticking to that. We had a chance in 2012 to begin that conversation mm-hmm. about what it would look like to develop the capacities. Um, inside a state 
to uh, overturn the global political economic forces that uh, live inside of states. I mean, this is this is we're going back to Pan, one of Panitch's like signal like theoretical contributions. I think in the in the field of globalization studies and polit- global political economy and all the rest of it is that he he took up Polancis's understanding of the internationalization of the state and operationalized it for the study of global political economy. Now that's a mouthful. What do I mean by that? Polancis had a theory and an, an argument uh, is rooted in history and theory and all the rest of it, that um, what was happening in, in in what would later become known as neoliberal globalization in the 1970s right. and coming out of the 60s is that you had the internationalization of the state. And so what that meant was that, you know, uh, you know, trying to overthrow the kind of um, often kind of um, schematic uh, world systems theory uh, sort of style understanding of kind of, uh, you know, uh, core periphery or there's a kind of like these uh, international hegemons that sort of operate uh, over over top of as this, you know, superstructure of over of the global economy and there's these smaller states trying to operate underneath of it. Palazzo said, no, no, no. Um, you've got the wrong sort of spatial model. <laughs> a, a proper spatial model would be to understand because I mean all of our model, all of theory is spatial at the end of the day. It of is course. right. How, how do you conceptualize this, these these ideas relating to one another in space? How do they how do they come together? Um, the the appropriate spatial model would be to understand that that uh, a fraction of capital inside of the state um, has become internationalized. So its interests, its demands, um, its power comes from outside the polity, but it operates inside uh, you know, the sovereign political and economic and even social sphere of any nation. And so it's kind of like, you know, um, the <laughs> whatever the, 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 the fox isn't uh, at the gate, the fox is in the hen house all along, right, right operating right. And, and managing the way the chickens lay the eggs and, and how and how people <laughs> you know, uh, operate then and there. And so Panitch and Gendon are, are obsessive about this notion about capacities. Um, how do we develop the capacities to carry out the, the political battles that need to be carried out, right? series of uh, obeying the call of history, if you will. To right. step in when they can to try to stop the bleeding of austerity, um, you know, try to get the boot uh, off the the necks, the back of the necks of of the Greek people. Um, they couldn't sit back and and let that happen while they sort of uh, you know developed their cadres and and more people died and more people lost their their entirety of their wealth and and, and more people were you know destitute. They had to step in and do something. Uh, but with that being said, it was going to throw up inevitable contradictions and. Capacities are the things that uh, working classes develop consciously through institutions, through party building, through other mechanisms wherein they come together to build uh, uh, an alternate power structure in and inside and outside the state that has the ability, that has the leverage, right? Not the rhetorical ability on Twitter, not the clout in the media, but mm-hmm. the, the, the leverage in, in the mechanisms of society and the things that make things move or not – or more importantly, not move, to have those capacities to stand up against the inevitable contradictions which will arise. And so it's not a question of like um, how do we do things and where, where there's no downsides or um, you know, um, how to smash the state. Like we need the state. How do you yeah. – how, how do you – the state is a bull that we're trying to ride – uh, while we're trying to kill it at the same time, how do you stay on the bull and, and kill it at the same time and get where you need to go before the bull dies? Uh, because the state's the mechanism that organizes uh, the political economic sphere of any nation, which is the foundation of the livelihood and the well-being of that same nation. 
Yes. So how do you smash the very thing you're smashing? That's the teeth that we're all suckling from, my friend. Yeah. How do yeah. you, how do you, how do you vanquish the teeth that you need to suckle from in order to stay alive and keep your keep the basis of of social stability long enough to transform society? Yeah, it's uh, the there conditions are no simplistic. Of- the conditions yeah. of possibility um, for a thriving left uh, is is what's right. at stake in this debate. And uh, if we don't, um, how should we say, tend to our garden, you know, uh, <laughs> so many metaphors. I love it. Yeah, but you know, it, it's 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 uh, it's what I think because a common criticism is, oh, you guys think this can all change through parliamentary politics, and the answer, of course, is no. That's actually not the point not at all. all. You know, it, it's not like we're state fetishists who really believe politics should only ever happen in one place or even can happen in one place alone. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, uh, it's a rearguard action to yep. cover us as we try desperately in this closing window of opportunity to to create these capacities that you've just been referring to and it it's all hands on deck i mean from that point in the debate onwards i think it is all hands on deck i mean i remember panich putting it so well and Gindin, um when they were referring to the kind of um moment in 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 the greek equation where it, it the um he was like look i mean to be realistic and i think he even said this on your show you know it would have taken um, a total mobilization of the the, the voluntary economy of Greece, yeah. the, the Greek right. military, uh, you know, in a kind of like wartime mobilization almost mm-hmm. to just to be able to ride out the potential shockwaves, whether whether Greece left the European Union, which I don't think he was in favor of, but even staying within the European Union um, yep. in order to buy time to link up with potentially other governments and other countries because Greece was not going to stand against the European Union alone. It would have had to have built alliances with the left in other countries. This would have had to have been a pan-European movement. And I I know possibly our mutual friends in uh, Alpha Bunga Bunga are listening to this and probably turning a, a, a delightful paid shade of grey uh, listening to my voice right now. But I mean, uh, you know, because um, I've never personally fully bought this idea that there's no... Uh, European polity, because I'm not really sure there's an Irish polity or a British polity either. I, I don't see the point necessarily fetishizing one over the other. You can these yeah. things are potentials. They you can work with them. Um, they operational they are. abstractions. Yes, they, get, they are abstractions, but they be, they become operationalized in a number of ways that you know that we can't ignore. Um, and so you know, I mean, the res- mm-hmm. the response would be that you know the 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 sort of pro Grexit crew um, were messianic in a way. And I, again, we can talk about the the sort of the um, the the merits, the relative merits of, of either strategy. Uh, yeah. Do do or don't wither Brex, uh, Grexit. Oops, uh, somewhat um, I know. profound slip of the tongue, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, wither Grexit uh, would show up again in the Brexit debates in a big way. Mm-hmm. Uh, wither wither Grexit. Um, you know, but what I'll say is is that you know take even taking them at their word. That Grexit was possible, it was doable, and it was a way out of the EU. It would have radically transformed political economy and form a, a, another center of sort of anti-austerian uh, power in the world to try to be as charitable as possible. If you were going to do that, right, you would have to see a mobilization that was far, far, far outside the scope of what was possible given the work that we had put in, right? Yeah. And so the argument was that you would need to see a, a, a total mobilization of, this, of the solidarity networks in Greece. Uh, going back to finding alternate ways to uh, distribute goods and services uh, in in the in the black on the black market, right? Yeah. Getting 
produce to people who need it, getting food to people who need it. Uh, when, when the monetary uh, currency system completely grinds to a halt, which it absolutely would have, how do you provide for social need? And, and if this was something that was truly sought after by the people who were barking for Grexit, who were, who were pr- predominantly, um, Jesus, Nick, you're going to get me in so much trouble, <laughs> who were predominantly Marxist econo- uh, economics right. professors who had come back to be <laughs> to become uh, members of parliament um, during that during that series of uh, uh, rise. And they were barking for Grexit while doing nothing in the in the at the community level to enable that the the, um, the capacities that would be required to pull it off. Yeah. That was the argument of Panitch um, yeah. and, and his, his co-thinkers. Um, uh, is, it's, not that, it's not that we shouldn't do Grexit. It's some, interesting it's, how sometimes this all gets represented as a kind of a fixation or a fetishization of the state apparatus, right. whereas yeah. in fact, you know, it's not. It's, it's a, a, to borrow your much earlier phrase from this discussion today, uh, it's, it's, it's a realpolitik style recognition that you, you, you need to have this thing on your side if you're going to implement, you know, your, your strategies, you know, the, 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 the voluntary economies, the, in, in Greece, the, the, the network, uh, the networks of parallel economies in Greece were not going to be able to go this alone. Um, and, and those are the capacities that yeah. were going to need to be developed. And this was what, I mean, Michael Sportolakis was saying, this is a friend and, um, mm. of, of Panitch and former student. And, and that kind of faction inside of Syriza, they were saying this, they were saying this in 2011, that if mm. we're going to do this, if we're going to break with neoliberal austerity, we're going to have to develop these capacities in order to have a fighting fucking chance. And even then it's like a 80, 20, right? 20% chance of victory, even then. Right. And so if yeah. you want to argue for Grexit, if you want to argue for a radical break with the status quo, then you you better be, you know, not to use a, a somewhat uh, lampooned uh, phrase on the online left. You better be doing the work <laughs> uh, uh, to develop these alternate capacities to enable that kind of transformation. And, and it wasn't happening. It wasn't happening. And we could say like and, and so then in the absence of that, you, you're demanding that the Greek people fall on their own sword and commit ritualistic suic- collective suicide. Yeah. Uh, so that the so that the international left can live out its fantasy of 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 uh, an anti austerian uh, you know uh, center of of counter power, which who doesn't want that? But I'm not going to ask uh, the entirety of the Greek working class to to commit Harry Carey uh, to try to do it because Lord knows I wouldn't. Would you? I wouldn't. What if you woke up tomorrow and you couldn't get any money from the ATM and you went to buy bread and your money was fucking worthless? Social collapse. Would you sign up for that? Even if you would, you know, uh, yeah, so that, you are in the extreme minority, my friend. Yeah, yeah, and, and you're not yeah. going to connect it with uh, the the will of ordinary voters. That's for sure. No, no. And then then comes you know the the gulags, right? Because you have to implement some some really uh, draconian and, and anti democratic um, measures on on a on a society that increasingly sees you as the oppressor. Yeah. How does that feel? You know, whether or not quote history is on your side. If you're preventing them from from eating and sleeping and living their lives and fucking and and you know and, uh, <laughs> you're the oppressor, you yeah. know, in their view. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to be the oppressor here for a minute or two, um, and because uh, we we're going long, and I don't think we're there yet. So, um, Adam, I'm going to invite you to. Um, take a quick break here and uh we will do a very uncharacteristic thing for my show which is actually have a b-side 
And we, uh, if you, if you will agree to it, um, I have a few more questions for you and it would be sweet to, to just wrap up the conversation with, uh, with a, a bit more of your time and, uh, maybe hold forth on, on some of your, uh, views on where the left goes from here. Um, and also, um, your, your show. Yeah. I hope you'll stick yeah. around. Yeah, I'd be glad to do that. I'm having a lot of fun, to be honest with you. Um, All right. I don't get a chance to do this uh, as often, and it's, it's been a real pleasure. All right, great. Okay. Thank you, Adam. 